most of microbiome research contains data derived from populations that are from Europe or United States. So what can we say is healthy or unhealthy if our reference point is very limited? So scientists are saying, okay, how can we find a, quote unquote, a wild type microbiome? And that's what makes the Yamamani so unique. Perhaps they may represent one of the world's last populations that could have a microbiome that is largely intact. What I mean by intact, that is a continuation of the long-standing co-evolution between their microbes and the surrounding ecosystem. Whereas we have disrupted that very much so by some society. Welcome to the Mr. Rat Show, where I talk to the most interesting global personalities about the future of humanity. Hello, beautiful humans. Today, I have the absolute pleasure to have David Good in the Mr. Rat Show. Now, who's David Good and why did I invite him to my show? Here's the thing, David is a microbiome researcher with a one-of-a-kind life. He's half American, half Yanomami. You heard it well, Yanomami. The Yanomamis are one of the last indigenous groups in the Amazon that still live by hunter-gathering and small-scale farming and also seem to have the most diverse gut microbiome of any human community across the globe. Today, David and his team of researchers at the Yanomami Foundation are going into the remoteness of the Amazon rainforest to study why these indigenous groups seem to be so successful at preserving a very diverse gut. Now, remember, as far as science shows today, the more diverse your gut microbiome is, the healthier you are. Unfortunately, studies show that our current lifestyle and foods we eat, the toxins we're exposed to, have disrupted our microbiome, and this seems to be directly linked to an alarming increase in autoimmune disorders and chronic inflammatory diseases. David, bienvenido. ¿Cómo estás? How are you? Hi, Rad. Thank you for having me, Mr. Jane. Gracias. Thank you for, for that morning uh, introduction. Very honored and happy to be on the show. Cool. So, David, let me start by asking you, do you also speak a Yanomami language? Yeah, no, I, um, I can't say I speak with absolute fluency, but it's an ongoing process. You know, I, uh, <laughs> the, the funny story is when I first went down as an adult, I only knew two phrases. <laughs> One was, yeah. Uh, from my childhood, and one was Yaohi, which is I'm hungry, <laughs> and the other is Yaposi Shipiti, which is my butt really itches. So, wow. <laughs> so, those are the two things. I mean, they're applicable in the jungle, right? Those two things can happen. But, um, no, but since then, I, I picked up a lot more Yanomami, understanding it more. And obviously, it's a, as many languages are, it's, it's one of those things you have to learn when you're immersed in that society. And it's an exciting adventure, and I can certainly speak a lot more than that today. That's so cool. David, let's start by, please, you telling us more about you, who you are, and start from the very beginning, from your father, how he met your mother, how he went down to study, to research the, the Yanomamis down in the rainforest in the Amazon. Yeah, sure. So my story, I like to begin with my parents. And, you know, my dad was in the seventies, was a graduate student at Penn State University doing his PhD in anthropology. 
and he had studied under the great anthropologist and the late anthropologist Napoleon Shagnum. And he was tasked to go to the Yanomami people in one of the more remote communities in the upper Orinoco of Venezuela to study uh, their diet and to kind of get an understanding of their culture and their sort of violent patterns as it relates to diet. And this was, especially in the 70s, of particular interest to social scientists because the Yanomami at the time were, were kind of characterized as one of the world's last relatively isolated indigenous groups, isolated indigenous groups that have retained much of their ancestral way of life. And so for social scientists, this was like kind of getting a snapshot of how perhaps hunter-gatherers or, or in small-scale gardening societies like the Yanomami have lived before they were either radically changed by Westernization or the influences of outside Western culture. So my dad went down to Venezuela and because half of the Yanomami territory is in Venezuela, but not only are they in Venezuela, but they're in one of the more remote areas of Venezuela, which is the Amazon region in the upper Orinoco. And my dad lived among a community known as Hatsapuateri, and that is where he made his basis of his research. And my dad, coming from, you know, from Philadelphia, found himself in, a, in a, what we call culture shock, living in a in a society where you live in this communal roundhouse structure, a communal society, sleep in hammocks, everyone is basically half naked. There's no means of telecommunications or contacting the outside world. The counting system was one, two, and many. They were a non-literate society, no concept of the calendar or Gregorian calendar as we know it. So for my dad, it was like, wow, you know, really special for him to get an opportunity to live in this very unique indigenous society and to get an opportunity to understand their way of life and, the, and how they interact with the Amazon rainforest. But he did more than just find it exciting. He fell in love with their way of life. Then he found a society that was essentially, in his experience and his opinion, free from from the stress and woes that afflict us here in, in modern Western societies. And he found people that really lived in harmony with each other and with the surrounding rainforest, and they were truly happy. And he, he described it as, this is the way humans were, were meant to live. And so what was supposed to be a 15-month research program ended up being changing his life forever. He ended up staying there for over the course of 12 years. Wow, and, um, 12 years. Did he like stay 12 years there without getting out? Like all in a row or he, he would go back and forth? Yeah, of course he had to renew his permits and his visas and his passports. So yeah, I mean, obviously he had to go back but for his research purposes. And then uh, during that time period, that's when he met my mother, Yadima. And Yadima was the younger sister of the headman of that community. And what started out as sort of a friendship in that Yanomami village over the years have fostered into a romance. And of course, this isn't exactly my story to tell. I wasn't there, but I can say that after I have lived among my family in the Yanomami for a while and done all these trips, I can almost, I can see how this friendship and this and, and romance has had materialized. And so they got married according to Yanomami customs. And, you know, my dad was adopted into the community and he learned their language, hunted like them, walked like them, trekked like them, learned to speak Yanomami fluently. And however, you know, they are a marriage and a, and a relationship that is part of two radically different cultures. So one of the, uh, you know, the Yanomami and one of Philadelphia. And just as much as my mother and her family had showed my father the world of the Yanomami, the world of the Amazon, now that they're married, he wanted to um, show her his world. And she was interested to 
to see his world, his society. And it's customary among the Yanoma. I mean, where actually the, the, the woman moves into the village of the husband. But needless to say, I don't think my mom had any idea what Philadelphia was going to be like. <laughs> she thought she was going to the village of, his, of her husband. And then she realized it was not yeah. really like a village. Uh, she didn't expect that, basically. Oh. I mean, her world and her understanding of her of the world and her reality was confined with her experiences in the Amazon. So she thought she was just going to another Yanomami village, you know. Um, so you can imagine the huge shock that she had experienced, and you know, not not all of it was negative. You know, a lot of it was positive too. But you could just imagine the immense stimulation of the senses, I guess you could say, when she arrived. You know, in Caracas and in seeing car for the first time, like Trinity, how that works, you know, concrete buildings, mirrors, you know, the food, the clothes. So it's just already, already in Caracas, already in Caracas. Yeah. Yeah. And then Caracas and then United States. So, yeah. So what, when my mom arrived in, in the United States, I was born shortly after in Philadelphia, I'm in 86 and we kind of became this really unique intercultural family and that was sort of a one of a kind that kind of grasped or captivated the hearts and attentions of millions across the world we were um yeah uh, i guess i was just a baby but we were you know featured in different news outlets cbs good morning philadelphia people magazine and so on so it was kind of like a very unique story and that is how it originally started and However, uh, David, what, what, let me let me get let me get into that. But did, did your mom speak speak English? Like, how did your mom communicate with all this media attention, everything? How how what do you remember of that? Yeah, no, no, good point. Um, so she didn't speak any English. Of course, you know, she was learning English, but uh, I think more more Spanish than English, right? Because Spanish in Venezuela, because my dad had all intentions of living in Venezuela at the time. Uh, but just needed to find a way to, to find you know, resources and funding to do so. Anyway, she started learning a little bit of English, but no, no, the only person she could communicate to was my father, her husband. So you can imagine the difficult situation that um, that immediately one could see, you know, with this this intercultural marriage. Not not difficult in the fact that you know, they love each other. You know, love is love. They love each other. They want to be with each other. But how do you reconcile these two? really different cultures and then raising a family together and after a while you can kind of understand how my mom felt kind of you know estranged alienated lonely you know she and in, in, in the united states she couldn't call upon her sisters to go fishing she couldn't go you know work the gardens or collect firewood because in the world of the yanomami she was a full competent you know individual person who knows the, the fluctuations and the cycles of her ecosystem. But now in Philadelphia, she can barely operate a VCR. <laughs> and I think after a while, you know, things got pretty lonely for her and, and she felt very sad and depressed and, and obviously just weighed heavily on my father and he tried everything he could, you know, to, to, to do return trips. And we did make return trips. So when I was, hey, we spent time in my village and spent time in Venezuela, but we, after my sister and brother was born, things got really difficult, really expensive. You know, trips start costing tens of thousands of dollars to be able to go back to the jungle. So unfortunately, after six years 
my mom had to make a very difficult choice. And one of those choices, you know, where does she stay in the United States with, with, you know, her kids and her husband, whom she loved, but, you know, faced this very challenging way of life, or does she stay in the jungle? And, and in the moment, you know, she made that decision to separate from the family and she stayed in the Amazon and I stayed in the United States. And that would be the last time I would see my mom for, for 20 years. So that was what year again? I was in 92. 92. So 20 years later, you met her again. Yeah. So, um, why, so but wait, before you get into that story, tell me what is the main things you remember when you uh, grew up with your mom and then in the moment where, where she left, what, what kind of memories, emotions did you have? Were you angry? Were you sad? Were you surprised? Did you wonder where your mom went? Did you know where your mom went? Like, what do you remember? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So up until my mom left, you know, I didn't, it's, it's funny because I didn't really see my mom as this Amazonian hunter-gatherer indigenous woman. She was just, she was just my mom, you know, she's there to take care of me, there to scold me when I get in trouble. <laughs> so, and I didn't really recognize this really distinct characteristics or this, this, this difference between her and my, my other friend's mom's. And I spoke Yanomami, I was learning Yanomami. And then, um, but I recognized that after, as we got older, our English surpassed our English. But I do have many memories of laughing and playing with mom and, and, and spending, you know, times in the park with my dad and the family. And we were, you know, despite our challenges, we were a happy family. And then, as I mentioned in 92, for all the reasons I mentioned before, she's, we broke up as a family. And when I was five, I didn't quite understand why she left and you know i didn't even know she you know this was going to be the last time i would see my mom and i don't think any of us but um it's just the way things had turned out and as the years went by i re started realizing that my mom was not coming back and i didn't know how to cope with that and as a young child five six seven years old i internalized it as abandonment you know i felt like that Something about me as a, as a child, it wasn't good enough for her to stay, to want to be with me. So you can imagine the heartache and, and uh, being six, seven, eight, nine years old. And then light goes on and mom just sort of became kind of like this mythical story in her household. You know, we knew she's there. We knew she, we knew she's who she is and, and, and how she came about, you know, being here in the United States. But after a while, I just kind of lived, moved on. And had no contact with her for 20 years and didn't know where she was. I didn't know she was alive. Not but contact whatsoever, not possible yeah. to ring the phone, nothing. Like, of course, she nothing. left completely off the grid. Yeah. Like completely off the grid, deep in the Amazon rainforest. Yeah. Um, and so I grappled that, you know, in those 20 years of wondering why mom left and, and, but also, you know, who I am as an individual, especially during your adolescence, as you're trying to understand your world and who you are as a human being and a person and your individuality. And like, there's this whole part of me that's the mummy, and I'm just thinking, well, you know, I, I growing up, I play baseball, I go to the movies, you know, I do all these American things, eat burgers, french fries, I'm like, Yanomami, you should, like, I don't have any cultural connection to that. I didn't really feel like that I'm a warrior of the Amazon or that I eat snakes and shoot monkeys and sleep in hammocks and eat plantains. But it was deeper than that, right? You know, I felt that my connection, or at least my inherent connection, biological connection to the rainforest was my mother. And I felt like, how could I be proud of being Yanomami if my mother, my Yanomami mother, left me? 
that's how that shaped my adolescence and the upper 20s. But of course, every step of the way, I missed my mom. And I, you know, as, as much as I felt angry at her, I loved her. And because at five years old, before she left, she was my mother. She took care of me. She was my source of security and, and she was my source of happiness and, and fed me and took care of me. And, and then she just left. But I still missed her. And it wasn't until in my younger 20s when I realized that I can't live like this forever. To this battle between, you know, who I am as an American, as a yellow mommy, and this constant state of anguish and anxiety hurt. So I decided that I needed to go on a quest, on a journey back to the Amazon, back to my ancestral homeland to see if mom was alive and if she's alive to uh, reunite with her once again. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. So tell me more about that first journey when, when you met your mother and tell me how was that first contact with the Yanomami people? Yeah, it took me like two years to prepare because nobody, nobody knew anything you know, about her. And, and obviously um, the, the, the path to my, my village is very complicated, right? So it's not like I can just go online and buy a ticket to Asapuateri. And also navigating sort of the, the challenging times of Venezuela and what they're going through as a nation also was a big part of preparing for this expedition. So uh, needless to say, you know, I had to, uh, I had to fly to Caracas and then I met up with Hortense Caballero, a Venezuelan anthropologist, uh, Ivic, who had worked with the Alami for 30 years. And she took me under her wing and, and she kind of really laid the path to finding my mom. And so from there, we flew to Puerto Vallecucho, which is the capital of the Amazonas state in Venezuela. And then we got on a boat from Samariapo, Port Town, and took a, uh, it's about two, two days, two nights, all the way to uh, La Esmeralda, which is the main hub of, of that territory. And then we got on a boat. And then let's say over the course of three, four days, it took as we passed by villages going up the Orinoco River, and then you have to cross the Guajaripo Rapids. And then from there, you don't know where the Yanomami communities are because they're semi-nomadic people. And they never, you know, they, they could be on the river or they can be inland or they can be really inland. You know, that can mean one day trek through the jungle, three days trek through the jungle, five days. You just, you don't know these things until you get there. And then finally, we arrived at Hasapuateri, that community, and it was a big big commotion, right? With my, my NMI family, they're seeing me for the first time. And then when I got off the boat, I was immediately mobbed by, by, I guess you could say my family. They had their hands up my shirt, you know, down my pants, touching my nose, touching my beard, pulling on my hair. <laughs> and, um, and they were just, you know, shouting things in Yanomami. I have no idea what they're saying. <laughs> no, you know, and it was really, really emotional. And before I met mom, but they didn't know who you were at that moment. They didn't know who I was. They knew because we arrived and we, I presented, we presented me as the son of Yadima. And of course, the story of Yadima, you know, I'm sorry, Yadima is my mother's name. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That went, that left the forest and, and married a, a Naba, you know, it was, it was the first of its kind of that, that region, you know, so mm -hmm. it was quite a, quite, we were quite a kind of story for them as well. Right. But, you know, if, to the Yanomami to see me come back and return. It was very emotional. And I remember looking into their dark brown eyes and, and realizing that I'm not going to a foreign land. I'm not like a scientist or, or an anthropologist or biologist that's right. trying to study people. It mm -hmm. really hit me that, wow, I'm mm -hmm. going back home to my family. And mm -hmm. that this jungle, this rainforest is also my home. 
And I really felt like I was rediscovering my heritage and my, and my roots in the Amazon. And so after about an hour to hell of, of being moms about my family, my mom walks into the village finally, and everybody got quiet. Everybody kind of paved the way. And mom, I knew it was her, recognized her, you know, from, from the memories of being a child and also the pictures, I knew it was her. And, and I, I got out of my hammock and I walked towards her and she walked towards me and you know, I couldn't speak, you know, mommy, she couldn't speak any English, but that didn't matter. All that mattered was that I found her and she was alive and we were together. And all I could do is put my hand on her shoulder. And I said, Hey ma, I, I made it. I'm home. And we both down just crying, you know, embracing each other. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. How old is your mom right now? Yeah. Yeah. So there's no birthdays or, or, or birth certificate or anything like everything is undocumented or recorded. However, I can make a guess at probably upper fifties, you know, maybe close to sixty. Yeah. Okay. Okay. You know, give or take. And do you have any do you have any 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 Yanomami siblings? Yeah, yeah. So after this emotional reunion with mom and that like I said, of the twenty years I spent, you know, grappling with so much turmoil, in that moment it was all gone. It was all gone. I, I didn't have a single ounce of hate or grudge. I was just so happy that she was alive, you know, and I was right. focused on now. The past is in the past. Can't right. change it. But what I can do is have a new relationship with my mom, a bright new future and and, and rekindle what we had and, and pick up where we left off. And so, um, and that felt so wonderful to me. And, you know, I had, you know, was worried, <laughs> too, like it's my worries of my childhood. That my mom would reject me or that like I wasn't Yanawami, you know. Or yeah, of course. Me. Yeah. And who knows? Maybe I would have still continued to reject her or maybe I would did still. But I knew in that moment I was I was so happy and proud to be Yanawami. Right. And then after that, uh, I met my half-brother and his name was uh, Ricky. And uh, he goes, Ricky Martin, Ricky Martin. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, good. I still wish you Ricky Martin. So it was really cool to have a half brother, you know, well, we just call him brother in Yanomami culture. And he was really excited to, to, to meet me. Well, you said something interesting there. So in Yanomami culture, they're just brothers. There's no half brothers. So like oh. women and men, they, they basically they, they mix up without the necessity of being sort of what we call in the modern world, loyal to one person for the rest of their lives kind of thing. Is that how it works more or less? No, I think I think familial life is a little bit more communal. Yeah, and and mm. we'll have. I mean, obviously, there's this. There isn't kind of a nuclear family, but like you know, each hearth. You know, you have they sleep in hammocks and they hang the hammocks around a fire, right? Mm. And each fire designates a family unit, but it's not as nuclear as we as it is in Western society, and it's, it can be blended. And I call him Oshé, you know, the Oshé, which is brother and Yanomami. You know, there's no like half brother or brother. He's just my brother. So for all intents and purposes, you know, he is my full brother and uh, his children are my children. <laughs> so I, oh, really? kid, I call them my kids. And so are I, kids raised by the whole community somehow? Or Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. yeah. So it's very different to what, what we, how we raise kids that is basically mother and father raising children. Absolutely. And, and so, you know, when I 
quickly discovered in 2011 when I reunited my mom is, you know, just sort of this family structure and house structure. And yeah, it's very communal. A whole village raises raises a child. And what I love about Yanomami society is that you live a life based on reciprocity. You know, you don't, there's no such thing as keeping things to yourselves. You know, you share everything. Oftentimes a hunter will kill something and share all of his meat first before he eats or gets any at all. And of course it's expected or just in a very natural way that when somebody else hunts or gets something, that's what to be shared with him. And, 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 then, and I found that very, very beautiful aspect of Yanomami society. That's super, that's super interesting. So, so when that hunter goes hunting on a journey to, to get food. Do you, did you also go in those journeys? Did you also go hunting? Because I, I mean, as far as I know, they're nomadic people, right? Yeah, we say semi-nomadic, semi-nomadic because semi-nomadic. Um, yeah, they, they, they do cultivate food, right? So, the, and, and in my community, their main cultivation is plantains. And, um, however, the Amazonian ground is, is not fertile. It's not, not suitable for long-term agriculture. So they practice what's called slash and burns or Sweden horticulture, where they burn the underbrush to fertilize the uh, ground. And that allows for them to grow plantains, uh, maybe other crops, tobacco, and so on. Can you, can you elaborate a bit, a bit on that? I don't understand how it works. Oh, sure. Yeah. So what they'll do is they'll find, first of all, they need to find a good spot to clear in the jungle for to make a garden. But the ground is not, not suitable to grow crops because most of the nutrients in biomass or most of the nutrients taken up in the biomass. So when something falls or something dies, the surrounding foliage or the surrounding plants and so on quickly take up all the nutrients. It's not like in the Northeast in Pennsylvania, for example, a log that falls down could stay there for bearing time. So anyway, knowing that the Amazonian ground is not fertile, they, they burn. So they burn the underbrush. And the uh, ash, right, it's rich in nitrogen and other, other elements that it can be used as a fertilizer for the ground. And that fertilizer is what helps them grow their plants. However, that is not sustainable because, you know, especially with intense rain, a lot of those nutrients will leach away rather. But so, you know, based on what I understand, other, other you know, ethnographers, their crops can only yield enough you know, to feed a community, depending on the size of the community for two to three years. So they're always making new, clearing new spots or making new parts. So they can never really settle permanently in one area because their principal crop is the principal diet is, um, plantains. Well, if that, if they start, you know, losing plantains, they're going to go hungry, but also the surrounding game starts getting depleted. So because of those influences, they move around. And sometimes there may just not be enough food. And what they'll do is they'll kind of revert back to, I think, would be their more traditional hunter-gatherer lifestyles where they go into Wayumi and they just kind of kind of pick up and abandon their they abandon their village and just kind of go on this sort of open-ended journey through the jungle to either find a new place to make a garden or to just to, you know, find food. Because when you go deeper into the jungle, you go into areas where there's more game. And more opportunities to forage nuts, berries, mushrooms, you know, so it's really, really cool. So did you go on this journeys as well yourself? No, not, not Wyumis. I mean, I've trekked between the- What is Wyumis? A Wyumi is that extended trek to the garden when the Yanomami community will abandon their uh, village and go on this extended trek to the jungle to, uh, for various reasons. Okay. I understand. And okay. So 
you said they eat plantains. That's maybe the main thing of their diet. Is that correct? Yeah. So one thing I need to note is that, you know, my characterization of what the Yadaman eat or, and how they behave in their structure is, is, you know, is based on my experience of, of my family. Right. So right. we need to understand that the Yadamami have varying levels of cultural differences, depending on what country they're in, Brazil versus Venezuela. Also their geography, Padima Highlands versus the Orinoco uh, versus this, you know, the plains. And also the the level of integration with the nation state. So the Yanomami of my family, I would consider minimally impacted because they're so deep and so remote. So they've retained and engaged in much of their traditional behaviors. Whereas the Yanomami that live near La Esmeralda or perhaps near um, Christian mission will have more access to the uh, influences of the outside world. And that means some of them learn how to read and write in Spanish. Some of them purchase food and goods from the merchants in the markets, and some of them have motors, their mobility is different. So I just wanted, the point I'm trying to make is that I can't ride. And what my experience is, is absolutely the same through all of Yaroman. Right. Okay. No, but like, let's talk about your family, your, your man, yeah. man, the part you know, the part you've experienced. So the, their main food source is plantains. Yeah. 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 Yes. Okay. And how often do they eat in general? Like how many meals do they have per day, for example? Yeah, yeah. Well, one thing <laughs> I learned is there are no meals. You eat when there are no meals. Oh, good. Actually, you don't even just you don't eat when you're hungry. Sorry, that's actually a Western thing. You eat when there's food. <laughs> that's the yellow. You eat when there's food. Okay. And so, how often, in your experience, how often is there food? Yeah. So, um, yeah, there's no meals like breakfast, lunch, dinner, but there's always food at some point. And sometimes it can be just a few plantains and a crab. Other times, someone can come home with it. And a crab. Yeah, freshwater crabs. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah, the women love. Look, yeah, that's what kind of like um what the women do. They like to go out to the nearby creeks and underneath these big rocks are these freshwater crabs. Yeah. Nice. And do they cook them or? Uh... Yeah, yeah, we cook them. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we, yeah. Um, yeah. Or sometimes um, a hunter will bring back an anaconda or maybe capybara or peccary or maybe a monkey. Wow. Um, oh wow. Maybe the fishing that day is real good. We brought back 20 piranhas or maybe we only brought back two little tiny fish or maybe a nice big catfish. It all depends, right? On, mm. on the nature of ours. But would you say it's more vegetarian than meat-based or, or is it half-half or what, what would be your... You're like, yeah, no, it's thing. interesting. So we're oppor opportunistic foragers and hunter-gatherers. So someone could come home at two in the morning and you don't wait till quote-unquote breakfast time to eat. You, you get out of your hammock and you eat. You eat. <laughs> so, <laughs> are they sleeping at two in the morning? That's the question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, yeah. they're sleeping. But, you know, sometimes hunters will come back, you know, and they can come back at any time. <laughs> so right. when they come back, you reap the bounty for sure. Mm. So I would say I would characterize their diet as high in fiber and resistant starches, right? So they eat the green plantain. So when they eat plantains, for the most part, it's green. And when it's green, it's not, it hasn't ripened to become that sweet, simple sugar, right? Like a banana, like a ripe banana. So the, the green plantain is still considered a resistant starch. And what that means is that the complex carbohydrates that make up the banana are resistant to digestion in the small colon. I'm sorry, the small intestine. So a lot of that molecules, the complex carbohydrate molecules reach the distal colon. And, and sometimes those complex carbohydrates can behave or be metabolized similar to that of fiber. So I think it's safe to say high fiber, high resistant starch diet, but they uh, also are opportunistic forages. So uh, there could be times where they eat a lot of mushrooms 
mushrooms has a lot of other different kinds of complex carbohydrates, like height and also their seasonality to their fruits. So palm fruits, right? Like edabeshi, um, moriche, I think. And yeah, in Venezuela. Uh, moriche? I never used it. Yeah, yeah, it's an, a palm fruit. And um, okay. so those are often harvested at different times of the year. And then maybe uh, uh, we grub worms, caterpillars, termites. So um, oh, honey. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, so how do they prepare? Like, so, okay. So I understand most of it is cooked, right? Like the, the veggies, the plants, they, they cook them in water. They put them in a, do they have a pad and they put them in water? They boil it? Sometimes they, they set a fire or? More often they, uh, in a fire, they, they um, so you have this bed of coals, right? Uh, and embers okay. within the fire. So we take off the, the green peel and you just put the plantain on the coal so you roast them over the fire mm. uh, that's the most common way to cook them how about the fish how, how do you how do you guys prepare the fish for example or the anaconda yeah so oftentimes that kind of meat is is wrapped in in, in plantain leaves or banana leaves and you mm. put that where the coals of the fire and you roast them that way cook them that. Yeah. okay yeah. interesting yeah. interesting okay you said that there's no really like meals and they, they eat when there's food but how much do they eat when there is food? Do they eat until they're like completely full or uh, do you feel like they stop before they're full or uh, once you're feeling here? Yeah. Yeah. Well, man, those Yanomami could eat. I've never seen someone eat so much like the Yanomami. <laughs> so, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it's going to get full for sure. And how much is, is eaten also depends on how much food is available. And they want to make sure it gets shared with your family and, and other members of the community it, it, and it's a little bit of a feast or famine right mentality so you know Man. there's people you... oh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a happy moment it's a moment of celebration oh yeah yeah and it's so cool because yeah. it's like you know you're, you're you, you know it's funny here in this culture I'm always eating on the go or eating is right. so gosh it's so are you watching tv and you're just eating you don't even know what you're eating you're not connected you know you're not you have to think you know the food that the Yanomami eat, they, they're so intimately connected with that particular animal or that crop, right? Mm. Um, in a very spiritual way. And because that spiritual connection is shared among the community, when you eat, you know, with the Yanomami, you're very connected to the food, to the rainforest. You're not really thinking consciously like, oh, today I feel so connected to the Amazon. It's sort of like part of their everyday understanding of who they are as a people and their connection to, you know, their community. And, right. you know, and last time I ate a cheeseburger, I don't think I found any spiritual connection to it. So, um, absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. And do, do, do they have any kind of ritual before they start eating or is it just like, no, no. Yeah. No, no. it's just, yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, and so, and sometimes the men or whoever will talk about when it was like hunting this animal or what it was like fishing or whatever. And then sometimes you get an opportunity to share your food with other people, which I think kind of helps create that deep, you know, social cohesion among the young. Hmm. What would you say about sort of like the typical fiber protein carb intake per day, if you would have to divide those in those three you know, categories? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's really hard to say because it really all depends, but because the animal, we don't choose to eat what they eat. It's what's available. Right. However, right. we can. We can confidently state that, you know, 80, similar to my father's research, right? Like 80 to 85% of their dietary intakes attributed to plantains. And, and based on my experience, I can certainly attest to that. Um, what's really interesting about Yanomami culture is that it's taboo, absolutely taboo to eat just meat. They can't eat just meat. So if you're given snake or if you're given, you know, monkey or whatever, 
it, you can't just eat it. It has to be accompanied by plantains or some kind of starch, right? Which is really interesting because, you know, we argue that uh, the American diet or Western diet or industrialized diet is, is made up of high fats, high protein, you know, and not enough fiber, low fiber, whereas the Yanomami diet is high fiber in comparison to ours. So it's really interesting because they're doing their health a great service, you know, uh, the benefit by eating plantains with meat because we know that fiber is very good for your health. You know, keeping you uh, healthy in, in your immune system. Do they drink a lot of water as well with those meals? Uh, what kind of drink do they consume? Yeah, just what water. Are they drinking? What? Water from the creek. Water from the river. Yeah. From the river. Okay. Okay. Right. Let me jump on to, I would like to go back to this topic of foods and everything maybe uh, sure. in a bit, but I want to know how are there cleaning habits? Are they always like concerned about cleaning their hands like we are in the modern world or are they more like easygoing? How, how is that? How is yeah, that? Let's, just, let's just say germ theory hasn't quite reached the analogy, you know. Um, so what's interesting is that, so they don't engage in these traditions of using soap and, you know, like stripping away of your body of all these soap and oils and stuff. And to the casual observer, they may look dirty, but I come to understand what does it mean to be clean, you know? And so they do go to the river every day, basically, to bathe. To bathe. And by bathe, they just kind of jump in, right? There's no soap or anything. Or, um, and they use it to cool off. But I, I've come to understand that their skin and their body is a unique interface between their biology and the environment. So they're completely immersed with their surrounding ecosystem and their body in terms of their hair and their skin reflects that surrounding ecosystem. And to me, that doesn't mean you're not clean to have dirt or microbes that are picked up from the surrounding ecosystem. To me, that's not unclean. In fact, I think in a way they're more clean than we are by not using soap. <laughs> that's interesting. That's interesting. Tell me a bit more about their social community structure. Do they have a leader? Are women and men like having the same roles? How did they structure their communities? Yeah, you know, some of them describe them as e egalitarian, like society. Some of them go as far as egalitarian, but it's not completely egalitarian uh, because there are strict roles, right? The men are the shamans and the men chop the trees, but the women collect their firewood. It's egalitarian-like. And so there are these kind of, you know, scripted gender roles, but it's not like it's enforced or anything. And what I like about Yellowlomi society, which I found interesting, is that there is a headman, right? Sort of a, a leader, right? I guess you can say. But he's not a leader in a sense that he was elected or that he kind of, you know, usurped power or anything. He's only a leader because the people like him. He may be a leader because he is a great shaman or he's a great hunter or he's very savvy and engaging with intervillage politics and making choices and decisions that benefit the community. And also being a leader, he doesn't have any sort of extra perks, right? He still has to hunt. He still has to fish. He still has to take care of his family. If you walk upon, if you walk in the Yanomami village and you look around, you would have no idea who the leader was or who the headman, you know. So that that's a little bit of that kind of political structure. And in each village is its own autonomous unit. So it's not like there's a consortium or a, a governing body that speaks on behalf of all the all the Yanomami communities. So what's interesting is that every community is its own political unit, autonomous unit, and they engage with other Yanomami villages as other autonomous units, and they 
can engage in warfare, they can engage in political alliances, they can, you know, so on. So, um, so they have their own democracy. Yeah, democracy in a way, in a sense where every community is its own, you know, makes their own decisions on their own behalf. They can't really make ranks. Right. It's on other communities' behalf. When it comes to their, their population, do you have numbers on whether the population is declining or growing? I think it's growing, um, at least from the numbers that I've read. I mean, Factoring in Venezuelan and Brazilian numbers, years ago, I thought it was at 30,000. Now people are putting at 40,000. And obviously with increased satellite technology and the ability to conduct census and field work as that improves and gets better, more accessible, we'll have a better idea. But as far as a population, but as far as a single Yanomami village, that can range anywhere from, I've seen it as low as 20 to 25 to um, wow. up, up to 200. Okay. And then there's, our, there's some very unique, very, very unique outliers that have 800, 1,000. Know, okay. Yeah, those are quite big then. How old do they live in general? I mean, I know that it's, it's hard to know, but have you ever questioned that? And have you ever tried to understand you know, that? Of course, as a, as a scientist, as a biologist that looks at the effect of their microbiome and their health, you know, lifespan is also a factor in that. And you know, what I've been thinking about is like, okay, well, what is their lifespan as a Yanomami that has access to Western foods? And then what is the lifespan of a Yanomami that, like my family, that lives deep in the jungle that still lives the traditional kind of way of life? And uh, so it's hard to say because there's, right. no, there's no ages, there's no death records or birth certificates or anything. And you can refer to a Canadian demographer, John Peters, who did some work with the Shidiana, which is subgroup of the Yanomami. But, you know, I don't know how much, how relevant that data means today. So I've seen elders that could be in their 60s. There's some communities that their lifespan, 50, very, very dynamic. So I just don't want to speak out of turn because I, I just But can you measure their biological age somehow with tests and biomarkers and stuff like that? Good question. Yeah. I know you can measure their biological age taking what forensics does, you know, when trying to take someone in terms of their, their teeth, I suppose. There are some anatomical ways to measure the age of, you know, a child, um, but also these are estimates. But I don't really know if we, there's a way to differentiate between someone who's 60 or 55, 65, or 57 or 63, you know. Right. But I think I know a little bit, tiny bit more about the Yanomamis now. And now I would like to jump on your work with the microbiome and what you guys are doing with the Yanomami Foundation, specifically related to studying the microbiome, the gut microbiome from the Yanomami people. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Really and I want to know, I want to know exactly, David, why is it important to have a, just to begin with, why is it important in your opinion to have a diverse microbiome? Yeah, so microbiome research, we're just we're just kind of scratching the surface, right? And understanding the interaction between these microbes and our human health and immune system and how that plays in our uh, the development of the immune system from birth. And the argument that's made is that we have lost, by we, I mean like Western industrialized societies, societies that are characterized as being uh, uh, populations that have used or overused antibiotics, eat processed foods, very low fiber, high fat, high protein, high sugar sedentary lifestyles, extreme sanitation practices, pollution. Okay, sorry, the list goes on. It. <laughs> Let's just say that this has all, uh, in one way or another, in some form or another, has affected our health. 
And more specifically, we've realized that there's been a reduction of, of microbial diversity within our microbiome. And the microbiome is a collection of all the microbes and their, and their genes. And microbes include bacteria, viruses, fungi, and even some small unicellular organisms like protists and so on that live in and on our body. And, and speaking specifically to bacteria and the gut, you know, a lot of these microbes have co-evolved with us and to the point where they need, you know, a human host to live. And we also need them to help us live healthy lives. So by losing perhaps some of these very kind of important microbes, we are now seeing a correlation with the rise of chronic inflammatory diseases, autoimmune disorders, GI issues. And we believe that by losing a lot of these microbes and seeing massive reduction in microbial diversity, we've lost our ancient allies that played an important role in keeping us healthy. So in a broad, broad stroke, we argue that diversity is what builds resilience and that goes with the Amazon ecosystem and the ecosystem within our gut. And so first of all, I want to ask why, why are you focused on the gut? Because I understand that microbiomes, they exist in different parts of your body. You're probably also everywhere. Basically you have bacteria on the skin, in your eye, in your ear, but why the gut? Yeah, well, you know, the gut contains trillions upon trillions. There's more microbes in the gut than any other location or body site. And I guess we can argue that in the gut, there's nothing more active in terms of our immune system than, than the gut, right? So there's more more nerve endings in the gut that I think of their central nervous system. And, and then that goes along with even sort of the traditional sayings you hear, like the, the gut is like the second brain or the gut brain accidents and so on. So the gut plays a very, very important role. And not, I'm not diminishing the roles of the microbiome body size, but the reason why I focus on the gut is because I believe, as you look at the numbers, a lot of the chronic inflammatory disorders and, uh, and autoimmune disorders can be tied to the gut. And we're not talking about little things. We're talking about disorders that can really compromise quality of life. And to the point where you see food allergies related to the gut, you see chronic inflammatory conditions like Crohn's disease or MS, which can be linked to the gut, you know? So um, anyway, it's just because it's kind of like the tropical, it's like the tropical rainforest of the human body. Interesting. That's an interesting analogy. And um, so... I find, I find very interesting that you say that there's a lot of nerves ending in the gut. And that makes me think that maybe our eddies probably, and there's, I think there's a lot of studies around this as well, that the gut is affected not only by the foods that we eat, but also the kind of feelings we have and how those feelings affect the nervous system. Would you agree with that? And if yes, what have you learned from the kind of society that the Yanomami live in, in terms of their feelings or their fears, if there is any fears, and how do you think that would affect their gut? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and feelings and fears, I think, you know, are social constructs. And, but I, I follow you and, and the gut brain access, right? Not really my area, but, you know, the research has shown that there's little immune cells that are constantly sampling the bacteria that are in the gut and, and the type of bacteria or type of the byproducts that bacteria are producing can enter 
the immune system or can enter the bloodstream. And some of those molecules, materials can actually reach the brain. Depending on the type of molecule, it could actually, you know, cause a particular effect on your, on your behavior. And while this is early research and it's all correlation, but, you know, as we advance and develop better tools and better methods of, of linking our data to, you know, cause and effect, you find those that suffer from depression, for example, um, deep depression or Down syndrome or, or a, uh, ADD, you know, for example, these are just some examples from my research when I read, you, you sample their gut and they actually have a very different microbiome profile than individuals that don't suffer from depression. And a lot of, a lot of times it's often marked by lower di diversity. So it's really interesting, right? The gut plays an important role in your immune system, but also plays a very important role in the gut-brain axis because of that very unique and special highway between the brain and the gut. And so, I mean, this is a stretch, but I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to actually make a statement that I'm tying this to their microbiome. But when I live among the Yanomami and I remember the stories my father tell me, what you see among the Yanomami is you see this really, you see happiness. You don't see abject loneliness. You don't see depression. You don't see PTSD. You don't see any of these things, these mental conditions afflict Western society, industrialized society. And, you know, suicide is just unfathomable to them. And, and here it's, a, it's, 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 it's an alarming rate, you know, very sad how many individuals will take their lives here and, and young people too. So, that can be attributed to their special social structure, but maybe research can show that food is medicine and, and mm. it, it can play an important role in keeping them healthy, not only biologically, but psychologically as well. But what, so I'm trying to understand something here. Do you think the food affects the gut and then the gut affects the mood? Or do you think the other way around? Do you think the mood affects the gut and then the gut sort of lays the, the, the base on whether foods pump in well into your body or not. You know what I mean? Very important question. And that's, that's a question that we're trying to answer every day, like a tinkin' or the egg, right? So, you know, someone, exactly. someone with colitis, right? Did the colitis cause the, the, cause the inflammatory conditions within the colon and thereby affecting the, the, the profile of the microbiome, or was it the profile of the microbiome that caused the colitis? And there are certain variables and factors, right, where eating, you know, a poor diet, I guess you could say, contributes to inflammatory conditions, right? But right, we can't, you know, correlation does not lead to causation. And, and that's what we're doing in our research, you know, it's a very important question. But so there's some of your research. No, go ahead. Sorry. You know, what I'm saying is that, you know, a lot of our research and our data reference points, you know, includes people from a very limited, you know, the scope of the data, right, is very limited because it comes from a very limited range of populations. So most of microbiome research contains data derived from populations that are from Europe or United States or Canada. So we start using that as a baseline and you start recognizing that these societies, right, with their poor diet and all the other factors, right, that affect the microbiome, how can that be a proper model? How can that be a proper reference point? So how can it, if, if, because how can that be representative of what a healthy microbiome is? So what can we say is healthy or unhealthy if our reference point is very limited, very, you know, not representative? 
So scientists and researchers are saying, okay, well, how can we, how can we find a one unquote, as we'd say, a wild type microbiome? And that's what makes the Yalamani so unique, you know, in that perhaps they may represent one of the world's last populations that could have a microbiome that is largely intact. What I mean by intact, that is a continuation for the most part of the long-standing co-evolution between their 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 microbes in the surrounding ecosystem, whereas we have disrupted that very much so in Western society. And that's why I can tell this that's why it's important what? To study the yellow mobile. Okay. Understand. But tell me something. When you study the microbiome of the Yanomami, like how big is the sample? So, the, so let's just say the gut, right? Uh, yeah. And because there's different, different ways. So to really truly know you know, the gut microbiome, the best way is to do a biopsy, right? But obviously we're not going to go into the jungle with our biopsy. It's a basin. <laughs> well, it's just not, it's just not practical, right? <laughs> so that would be tricky. Way, yeah. That would be tricky. But the best way to get representative of their microbiome comes from their feces. So we collect skull samples. Um, and, uh, and that's really funny because, you know, in my village, they just, as I, as we tried to explain research, and this is something new to them, right. As well. And we're trying to explain to them in the best of our ability to why this research is important and what it means to not only scientific community, but can help us understand health, you know, among the Yanomami. And of course I can take it a step further where, you know, their biological resilience, you know, and who they are as, as healthy and happy and strong people is a very important thing to protect. And, you know, so science can help, help spread that message. But still, nevertheless, they see me as this like crazy uncle that comes into the village and says, okay, everyone, it's really good to see you. I love you. And you know, I miss you, but it's okay if I can get a stool hit for it. And it's just, it's that's really <laughs> Yeah. So how, so how does that work? Take, take us through the, through that journey. Yeah, well, I have to be honest with you. This is unprecedented in, in doing this type of research. And and and, let, and let's face the facts. You know, prior scientists, prior researchers have have less left us with a very checkered history than uh, with biopiracy, exploitation, unethical research, and love the Um, You know, uh, look at uh, the darkness in the El Dorado controversy, and that could that would certainly give you more insights on what I mean. But to come in and as a scientist, as a researcher, you're already coming in with a very, you know, with a lot of baggage. So, but wait, 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 just, just briefly explain people. What is that? The darkness of El Dorado. What, what is that? Yeah, it's, it's just the, 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 the effect of scientific, well, the effect of researchers and outsiders have had uh, on the Yanomami ranging from, you know, geneticists to anthropologists and whatnot. And how, in the name of research, how they've exploited the Yanomami or have not um, provided, you know, meaningful, you know, benefit share to the Yanomami. So let's just say scientists would come in, parachute science, collect samples, and they would publish, right? And through their publications, they would, they advance their careers, they increase their salaries, they get more well-known. Let's just say they benefit. Let's just put it that way. Right. But the benefit has not exactly reached you know, has not been proportional and has not been shared in, in a very mm. fair way among the young mm. And are the Yanomami aware of this? Are they aware of this? They've become more and more increasingly aware. Yeah. And 
And especially since the Yanomami face very difficult challenges today from, you know, anywhere from like climate change, deforestation, evasion of legal gold miners, spreads of disease, and they need help and they need support, but you can't, you know, you can't fight these things unless you have some kind of economic, you know, engine to help power them. But then they see scientists and biologists and researchers, and they have a hard time understanding how does research benefit us? We give you, you know, the Yanomami are co-producers of knowledge. And because they're co-producers of knowledge, they're not being granted the right recognition, nor are they being granted, you know, equal benefit share when it comes to uh, research. It used to be, I think, you know, scientists feel that they're on the right side of history by saying, look, we're just here to collect, collect data. We're just publishing. We're going to release all the data. You know, we have the IRB, we have your consent, we can wipe our hands clean and that, you know, we're on the right side of things. But that, I argue that's not the case anymore. You can't just come in and, and say, hey, I'm just a researcher. All I want to do is publish and feel like, you know, you're doing the right thing because that in of itself, that's exploitation. You know, that's biopiracy. And so, you know, we want to do research in a way in which the Yanomami are research participants, you know, the research partners, you know, they are granting us knowledge. They are granting us their biological legacy access, you know, and they're, right. and they're, and they're microbiome, right. And something that we scientists really want to study is a result of thousands of years. Of right. They've built it up. Knowledge. They built it up, right. All right. You cannot just go there and steal information without um, sort of compensating that work of generations. Absolutely. Yeah, sure. They don't know how to extract DNA and sequence, you know, DNA and analyze right. and develop our plots and things like that. But I feel like that's the easy work. <laughs> They've done all the hard work. Okay. They are equal research partners. And that's. But do they have, so, so, sorry, tell me something. Do they have any sense for commerce or sort of, valuing that asset do, do they know that that's an asset for them and do they know that they can sell it do they have do they have sort of capital yep. I, I imagine the answer is no capitalistic mentality yeah. or are they are they changing with the years well yeah so again this all depends on which community you're speaking to. right so i'm talking are, about your community your experience sure sure yeah so i i would say no money has never been money is useless in that village you know What's what is money to them? It doesn't it, it holds no currency, but at the same time, there is a potential economic value that can be derived from our research. And I argue that we have a very important responsibility to be stewards, good stewards of this research. To you know, not only do we need to do everything we can to conduct best possible science on, but to ensure that any economic benefit that's derived from research goes back to the Yanomami community. So my family, you know, give them a million dollars. They don't, they, they have no idea what to do with it. I wanted David, for you to take us through. So let's go back through the process of taking the samples. You telling me how big those samples are and what do you compare those samples to? And then. What do you do with the samples and how do you, in the end, finance that work? Because I guess you take the samples for research and, and then how do you finance that research and how do you want to bring back? So, so sort of like, what's that return on that investment that you make? 
How do you Absolutely. refinance the projects that you have for your foundation? Right, right. So one thing to recognize is that the foundation is actually not conducting research. We are a international multidisciplinary institutions like EVIC, the flagship research institute in Venezuela. We team, you know, with various you know, universities in the U.S., uh, my university at University of Guelph in Canada. So the foundation is a supporter of this research and helps facilitate it, putting together a team so that we can carry out expeditions to Yanomami territory to achieve certain goals and projects, which does include biocultural research, microbiome research, but other projects too, like education projects or health and so on. So I just wanted to make that clear. It's not like we are the only actor in this research. So we collect samples, stool samples, right? And, and what's art about stool samples is that in, in order to um, not only study the gut microbiome, but we need to culture them, right? And to grow the microbes. And, and, and to really understand them. And so in order to grow the microbes, uh, you need to preserve it. In order to preserve it, you need to keep those samples cool. Preferably, you would want to freeze them. But bringing a freezer or nitrogen tanks to that little area of the Amazon is just not practical. So I've kind of developed new microbiome, or I have solar panels and batteries and refrigerator to help keep the samples cool. So then I transport them to a point where I can freeze them in a, in a negative 80 degrees Celsius freezer, which you know, helps preserve the microbe. And then those microbes, yeah, uh, then the stool samples can get back to my lab in Canada. Now, the financing comes from all directions, you know, universities, it can come from, you know, grants. Now the foundation itself will fundraise the help from, so, you know, crowdfunding. We even apply for grants, even through like, for example, the Explorers Club and sponsorships, you know, for example, through Dakota Lithium, who has sponsored us some heavy duty batteries to be able to carry out our research. So it's really, what I love about this research is there's so many multidisciplinary, you know, uh, so many people involved to help materialize this research. And then I also have, through the foundation, a partnership, right? Partnership through uh, about, uh, about a company uh, called Weiss Bioscience. And what they do is uh, not only do they help finance, provide funding to be able to uh, do the expedition, but as good stewards of the of, of microbiome research, they have also helped uh, provide funding so that help you. Know, so one year, for example, they funded for 3,000 mosquito nets for high-risk in, in communities for malaria. It was their job, and I see as in your role uh, in this big network, individuals and the institutions that are involved in this research, is that if they can find any economic benefit or value to our research, there's a contract where we don't. It's a legally binding contract that they will provide revenue share to the foundation to help us to do our good work. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, was them, you, you locked them in like that. Yeah, so it's a long-winded answer. And um, No, no, but that, that's clear. Yeah, yeah. So I, what I'm trying to do is be good stewards because I think we have a responsibility to do bio, good ethical research, but we also have a responsibility to ensure that any developments of these samples and especially any monetary benefit derived from these samples as a result of that goes back to the Yellow community. Whereas before, I argue that by simply doing research and just publishing your data and releasing it to the world, uh, while it's legal, I just don't think it's the most ethical thing because anyone can right. with and anyone can benefit from it, but that doesn't mean they have to get back to the Yellow community. And that's right. Good stewards. Yeah. Right. Okay. But you haven't told me how big the samples are. 
<laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Watch. More or less. Depends on the, depends on the size of their belt, I guess. <laughs> no, no. I mean, yeah. Sample in terms of people, like how many people oh, have you yeah. sampled? So sorry. I've misinterpreted. Um, yeah, well, that's the, lim uh, this, the sampling um, bot size or the, um, the number of samples is limited to how many I, I can fit in the fridge. So um, I've found in one exhibition able to collect about anywhere from 20 to 30 individuals. I just recently got back from a research expedition in Brazil and I was able to collect 35 samples. Um, yeah, from each community. And, um, is, is the goal to collect many, many more or what are you trying to do in that sense? Oh yeah. You know, so I, I, I see this as a perspective from a scientist, but also as a get money, you know, and it would be an injustice if we made this very difficult, long journey to only collect a few samples. And, and, and if you, the more samples you have, the better data you have, the better right. research you can have, the stronger your research is. So obviously I think, you know, it behooved us to collect as many samples as possible. My goal someday is to study longitudinally uh, the microbiome of individuals from the community. Now, what that means is studying their microbiome when they're born, when they're one years old, five years old, 20 years old, um, to really get a good understanding, you know, the development of the microbiome. Hmm. Do, they, are they, do they collaborate with you? Do they understand what you're doing yeah. at this point already? So good, good point. You know, when, ha when having these discussions with the money community, uh, especially, you know, with the backdrop of all the controversy, uh, the bad things that have happened to them done by some I found that there's three, three main points that they make. One first main point, they always ask, how does this research benefit us? That's the first thing because they know it benefits you. Right. And for us to say, Oh, well, you know, this research is going to benefit all of humanity. Oh, that's a bunch of crap, right? Because humanity in New York City is very different humanity than the jungle of the Amazon. So, uh, so they want to know that. So we, we argue that microbiome research is more than just do no harm. You have to do good at the same time. And that is really where the Yanomami Foundation kind of comes in and helps facilitate, right? We've delivered mosquito nets. We installed solar panels in areas where they needed it. We, you know, we were able to coordinate, you know, um, health teams to be able to provide much needed medicines to high impact, high risk communities. Right. So that is something I think, you know, and don't get me wrong. I don't have, I don't, I'm not saying it's perfect, but what I'm trying to do is start the process to right the wrongs. Okay. So that's point one. Point two is that the yellow money. They want to be involved in research. They're actually really, really interested, really, you know, engaged. And they said that, you know, they don't like the idea of somebody just coming in for two weeks and then leaving it. They never see them again. It just feels like they've been, they've been just dismissed. They've been objectified, right? As a, mm. who they are, you know, or right. a source, a source, a source of samples. They want to learn. They want to know. They, they even ask, Hey, can you please do your research here in the jungle? No, like so they're curious. They're curious. You know, they want to be included. They want, they want to know this process and they have mm -hmm. a right to, them. and we should, we should actually foster that curious. Obviously right. I can't you know, bring a negative 80 degrees or a DNA sequencer in the trouble, but, mm -hmm. but, you know, I tell them that, you know, that we won't, you know, this won't be the last time you'll see us. We'll come back. 
will share on results. We, we promise to give you updates. And, and the idea is that they, it's not that, you know, they want to control, they want to foster relationships. And that's more important, you know, is fostering relationships and, and building trust. Do you train someone that is part of the Yanomami family that lives there constantly to help you out in your research as well? Yeah, or it's not, you know, so obviously we, we've, we've done many, you know, um, samples from many different communities, but yeah, we, 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 we actually have, you know, we always find one or two, you know, individuals that are just there with you all day, every day, you know, and, and it's so interesting and they help, you know, our research could not, it could not work if, if they weren't for their help and their support. Okay. So now you do your research, you collect your samples, you take them to Canada, you study them. Now you have some results. What's next? What do you, what do you do next? Like you tell them, like you, you go back to the community, you share it with them what you found. What did you find so far? Yeah. Well, yeah, so far. Well, I mean, what we're finding is, um, it's like you're exploring a new ecosystem where you're seeing all these things for the first time, you know, like, like if you can imagine explorer going, you know, well, let's say someone from Philadelphia going to the Amazon side, we're seeing plants they've never seen before, birds they've never seen, animals, fish, you know, all kinds of flora and fauna they've never seen before. And, and, and so you can look at these things isolated in a very individual way. But what's important is what's the interaction? What's, what is this system, you know, understanding what is their role in this entire system? And that's similar to what we're finding when Yanomami got like a fire, like seed all kinds of new bugs or bugs, meaning bacteria and strains. We're seeing diversity levels, you know, they're very different from what we see in Western society. And lots of times we see these strains that are very rare. We call them vanished microbes, you know, microbes that have vanished in Western societies, but these are not more than just vanished, but they, you know, play an important role for keeping you healthy and, and helping you. Are these are this, are this bugs or this bacteria, have, have they been found before by someone or are you guys the first ones seeing them? Yeah. So a lot of them have been found before and you can, you can find similar, you know, genus, I guess you can say, you could think of the categorization of classifying organisms. So, you know, we see similar genus between, let's say, for example, the Yanomami and the Hatsi people, uh, or other indigenous groups in the Amazon. And we see similar species as well. However, there are not two not every species are the same. You can have the same genus species in the Yanomami and in the Hatsa, but they're not entirely the same they, because these particular species have specifically evolved within this ecosystem with this particular individual. So you have strain levels. So, you know, mm. since I guess you can say strain levels. And so, yeah, we're seeing all kinds of cool strain levels. Um, and also we are seeing as of now, very, very, this is very preliminary data, but even new species describe it. That's, that's super interesting. So uh, I'm thinking from, from a business, because you mentioned that, of course, um, ideally, whatever returns you get from your research or your partners get from the research you're doing, part of that will get invested into improving the lives of the communities and helping them with whatever they need. And I'm thinking, are some of these bacteria that haven't been maybe found before replicable to be then in inserted, let's say in the gut of uh, modern world citizens to test whether 
they have positive effects in our guts, let's say. Is that is that also part of the yeah. plan? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I feel like, you know, research, there's there's ulterior motives, right? And and you know, we, we want to do good science, but we want to know how does this benefit humanity overall? How does this benefit society? And and my I mean, my particular goal is that if we can study, you know, the microbiome of the Yanomami people who are healthy and strong um and uh, adult have any indications of chronic inflammatory states that we have here then perhaps research could help benefit our people here who are suffering and help us understand and what that looks like i don't know i mean again i i don't i don't carry out this research with the the goal on a you know what was what's the thought of like what is how can i what is the economic value of this research? I just know that if there is economic value, we need to ensure that it goes back to money. But my goal is to understand human health and its relationship with microbes. Now, one thing you need to understand is that these bacteria, you know, was in the Yanomami gut, have co-evolved with the Yanomami within that particular ecosystem and requires a particular diet because the bacteria need to eat too. Well, what we eat is what the bacteria eats. And if they survive on a high fiber diet or high plantain diet, you know, if you take that particular bacteria and transplant that into someone in New York City, we don't know what's right. You know, right. Well, well, if well, it die out because the diet of a New Yorker is surely not the diet of a Yanomami, and their ecosystem is surely not that of a Yanomami. Secondarily, we need to be careful about this type of claims. You know, this idea of rewilding, right? So that microbe in that very intimate relationship that it has with that young money individual could be dangerous to a New Yorker. You put that in New Yorker, it, maybe this microbe will just bloom and take over the cut. And now you have a new kind of you know, disease or disorder. So I just want to say coming to very kind of oversimplifying how to use the research to benefit, it can be dangerous. However, if there's opportunities to where we can further dive into this research that could provide insights into benefiting and advancing or reestablishing health and wellness in our society. What does that mean? Who knows? Maybe it's a probiotic. It could be a probiotic. It could be. Yeah. Or maybe it's not actually the bacteria itself. Maybe it's some kind of metabolite that the bacteria is producing that could benefit. Mm. Mm. Or some kind of lifestyle or some kind of diet. <laughs> That's funny because, you know, we're, we're always trying to find a magic pill, right? But Right. You can't just, you, you just can't put a Yanomami trepanema bacteria inside of a New Yorker and say, okay, you're, you're going to be cured. You know, not that simple, right? Not that simple. Yeah. You must change the diet. You must change their lifestyle. Um, and uh, right. it's easier said than done, right? Right, right, right. When you, when you talk to them and explain them what you're doing and you tell them about the bacteria and, and, and the microbes that live within us, do, do, do they understand that? Do they know that their their bodies are full of microbes? And like, what do they think about that? Yeah, well, that's an ongoing dialogue for sure. And I mean, I can't come up with a conclusive answer now because it's it, it's a conversation. All I can say is it's a conversation that we've started. And it's a conversation in which, you know, we kind of presents information, right? And now we need to understand how do they perceive that? How does that information how is that reconciled within Yanomami ontology, right? And their understanding of their world. Do they reject it? Do they accept it? You know, or whatever. But obviously there are Yanomami individuals that do have an understanding. Those that have been trained as medics and those that have been trained, you know, understanding, you know, 
and, and germ theory and disease. But, you know, as far as like my family, I don't know, it's an ongoing conversation. And that's what I love about this research, right? It, it's all about creating dialogue and fostering relationships. That's beautiful. Tell me something. Um, if you were to choose three things that you have learned from the Yanomamis that you think would help our human civilization as a whole to thrive in the years to come, in the decades to come, the year, you know, 20 years, 30 years from now, what would be those three things? Yeah, that's like a thing of a lot. Um, and that's just based on personal experience. Based on your experience. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, like realistic things that we can like apply. Realistic. Yeah, right. Because, well, it's, uh, yeah, and I'm saying we, we, should, we should all, you know, be naked and, and, and run into the forest and say, like, <laughs> we could, but I think that's kind of complicated. It is complicated. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the Yanomami, it's such a resilient and happy people. And, and you wonder, you know, who's the more advanced society, right? I mean, the Yanomami are just as a contemporary as a people as we are, but they've done it without cell phones. They've done it without technology. So it makes me think that they are so far more advanced. And I'm quoting a friend who just released a paper, like the idea of a Venezuela, the idea of a Brazil, the idea about they're, they're all just new experiments, you know, whereas the Yanomami have been societies there for thousands of years, you know, and so they know the cycles of the rainforest better than any other researcher scientist. I would argue, or at least I would contend that wherever you are or wherever you live, try to get outside of your box and just go for a walk in parks, go for a walk in the woods. And when you look at a tree, when you look at an animal, think of the cycles that particular animal or tree goes through. And I, you'll feel, think more connected. And by feeling more connected, you'll feel more given, I think. So that, that, that's, that's something that the Yonomami has really altered my way of life, you know, being connected with the surrounding nature, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the second thing is the Anolami, you know, they really are such jokesters. <laughs> they can really make light of any situation. If there's anything that you could ask for as you're left stranded, more well, people in the jungle was just the Yanomami. Not because they know how to survive, but it's because they're there's they're so resilient in facing such difficult situations. And not that they are dismissive, but they can know how to make light hard, you know, light of any challenges. Um, and like, for example, you know, when they, when someone dies in the community, it's just very intense emotional ritual and everyone's crying. But by the next day, it's like collective amnesia. They wear their hearts on their sleeves. So I would argue that try not to bottle things up and let yourself be human. And, and, and when bad things happen, challenging things happen be angry, be sad or whatever, but don't bother your emotions. And obviously that is a, there's a much more deeper significance to that and at our complex society, but that's no, but that's a, that's an interesting point. Cause I feel like we clinch to possessions that we have. We, we don't, we don't let go. We don't, uh, yeah. Well, unfortunately a lot of it's structural, right? The way we're allowed to feel the way we're allowed to behave and sometimes defined by, you know, our structure, rigid structure of our society. It's, you know, the way men are, are allowed to behave and feel the way women are allowed to feel. And it's just, you know, wrong. 
and you don't see those type of things among Yanomamis. It's this, that's more of a, I guess, a social change, a call for a social change, I suppose, you know, we're living with. And I guess third, geez, the third one, the third one, you know, I'm guilty of this. And, and not that, you know, I, again, I could think of 10 other things, right? But the one I'm thinking at the top of my head is enjoy your food. <laughs> don't try to watch TV or do your work. And, you know, when you're eating, you know, first of all, Try, try, do your best to try to, you know, find a lunch part, eat some and, and really bond over the food because that food is more than just giving you calories. It's playing a very important role in, in your, in your microbiome, which in turn protects you. And, and one thing that I tell people is that whatever you eat, just know that you're feeding a very important organ, the, the gut microbiome, and that organ will take care of you, but it can only take care of you if you take care of it. So, and I feel that food, right? Diet is more than just this object of sustenance, right? It's, it's a reflection of your culture. It's a reflection of your identity and culture where we are um, a social species. So food, I believe should be done within a social cup. That's super, that's super interesting. I think that's a very good point. And that's an easy, maybe for some people, it's not that easy, but practical thing to do, to stop watching TV, stop looking at YouTube and just focus, enjoy your food each, each time you chew. David, it was a pleasure to have you. Is there anything else you want to share with people? Where can they find you? How can they support you? Yeah, absolutely. And I thank you a lot for having me. I feel like we could talk for three more hours, but I just hope that through this conversation, you know, we pique an interest of your listeners, um, you know, appreciation for who the Yanomami are, the diversity of human cultures. And, you know, the Yanomami live in the Amazon rainforest, which is under threat. The threat of the Amazon threatens the stability of our planet. And so if you're in New York City or in Canada or Russia or wherever, everyone has a particular stake in protecting the Amazon. And who better to protect it than the Yanomami people? And so that is sort of what drives our mission. And if you would like to learn a little bit more about why we're doing our work and what we support, you can visit YanomamiFoundation.org. You can certainly make a donation there or reach out to us on our contact page. We're always looking forward to the next trip. And what we learn, you know, what's special about these expeditions is that every time you visit the Yanomami, what we learn from them, we're eager to share with the rest of the world. Beautiful. David, Oshe, hermano, it was, it was beautiful to have you here. Thank you so much for your work. Thank you for spreading so many good news. And I hope you succeed with your endeavors it was an honor thank you see you next time man ciao ciao here at the mr rad show we provide first-hand information straight from the original source of knowledge the personal opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect those of mr rad this show is brought to you by the rad house an unbiased transparent agendaless independent media house our theme music is written and produced by marco Mello.